0: This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you on this glorious Friday. Tell you what, I looked out at the window at the beginning of the day, and it was sunny, and it looked like, oh, we're going to have another Texas, sunrise, but uh, the clouds have come over just a tad, but the sun is shining above them and God is on the throne, hallelujah. Did you, get, did you have a good rest last night mean you slept okay? Do you, look as refresh, do you feel as refreshed as you look? Huh? <laughs> good, okay. i tell you what, did you go to the morning worship? Oh, that was powerful, wasn't it? I tell you, it's the first time I've had the privilege of meeting Sharissa, but she is teaching the Word of God with great clarity, passion, conviction, and anointing. And I have been blessed these last two mornings, guys. We're gonna we're gonna get the study guide. People are still gonna come dribbling in, as you know, um, after this after breakfast moment. But here's the deal, you have to get both of them now. The people that did the stapling, the the photocopy organization, accidentally took the last sheet of the first half and nailed it to the, stapled it to the first, as the first sheet of the second half. So you have to have both study guides now. So we've got one study guide coming to you here. We've got another study guide coming there You will tell immediately when when you see them. One will say "Part A." Ah, that's the one I want to use. We want to use now. The other one will not have a Part B on it. It will be the second sheet that will say Part B at the the top line of it will read Seventh Day Adventist. So make sure you get the one that says the Seventh Day Adventist Church's position. That packet. It's a thicker packet. And then the first one that says, uh, what's the title of the first one that has Part A on it? Taste them again for the first time, Part A. Okay, excellent. So we're going to take just a few moments to uh, make sure that everybody gets both study guides. By the way, was that a good breakfast today or what? Who taught these people how to cook vegan here? that's pretty good Betty Crocker yeah right (laughs) No, it really was pretty good those uh, biscuits with that uh, gravy on it did you get that yeah so you're going out this afternoon grab your bag you grab your little sack lunch out into the city this afternoon so let's just do a little bit more uh, housekeeping while we're waiting for people coming in still and uh, getting the study guides out this session This is our final module, Module Three. It ends at what time? Exactly at 12. And then do we have a plenary at 12:15? Who's speaking for the plenary? Do you know? Pardon me. 12:15, back to the general hall. Anybody have a book? My booklet's over there in my briefcase, computer case. Wonder who's speaking. Whoever it is, I know it'll be good. Can you see? You have to look under the first page of presenters. Yeah. Before the seminars. Jan, Harry, what? Cabin Cole. Cole? Friday plenary. Friday plenary. Yeah, that's it. Jan, Harry, kaboom call. Yeah. Good. All right. I have the study guys come by? Have you gotten two yet? Okay. Don't worry, we're going to get the second one to you. I don't want to start until we still got people coming in, and so I want to make sure you get your study guide. I apologize for the lighting in this room. It seems rather dark to me. Does it seem dark to you? (laughs) And then I have to stand over here, because if I stand way over there, I'm so far away. So I have my my notes right here, and uh, Nestor... My associate said, Dwight, you are standing in the perfect shadow, so my apology. Everything is going to be happening on the screen again, though. Some have asked, listen, can you get this material? I, I, I missed uh, yesterday's. Can I get the material? Yes, you may. See that website right there? That's our website for our television ministry, New Perceptions. So www.pmchurch.tv. It's the dot .tv that you want, because if you do pmchurch.org, you get our big website. Uh, a web center for Pioneer Memorial Church. But the television ministry uses .tv. And you're looking for the series, The Gift. There'll be 11 parts to the series. The last four, everything before is setting us up for the last four. The last four are the materials that we shared yesterday afternoon and this morning. Four parts. Ellen White, what was she really like? We looked at that yesterday. Fascinating portrayal of her. A very normal wife, mother, American, and a follower of Christ. What was she really like? Number two, how did it really work? We looked at the four tests yesterday. Examine those. You say, oh man, I didn't get the study guide from yesterday. I saw somebody at the meeting last evening. Hey, I didn't get the study guide. Go to the website. All the study guides are there as well. So what you have here is exactly as we have on the website. So if you want to share this with friends, you say, hey, listen, I'm, you want, I've already written in mine, but would you like to have it? They just go and you can get the PDF there and you can print them off and use them any way you wish. So this morning, Ellen White, but what about the critics? That's going to be our part one. And then taste them again for the first time. That's part two this morning. And then we're off and running into a busy Friday afternoon and a blessed Sabbath. And then we're going home on Sunday. And can you believe this? This is the next to the last day in 2011. Did you know that or am I informing you of something? Can you believe it? The year is gone. Unbelievable. What a year. And you know what? Next year is going to be even more significant. Life on this planet will never be the same again. And next year we'll continue to disclose how radically life is changing. I've got to tell you a website while we're uh, waiting here. A gentleman named Chris Martinson, Chris Martinson, I don't know that he's a Christian, he was a research vice president with a big bank, living in Connecticut, had a huge house on the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, began to study trends in this nation and on the planet, realized we're headed for an extremely unusual time in earth history. Now, he's not a Christian, so he's not thinking, well, Jesus is coming. But he sold his mansion, bought a little farm in Massachusetts where he's homeschooling his children, quit his job at a Fortune 500 company as a research VP, and is now running the site chrismartinson.com where it is his passion to alert the world the next 20 years will be unlike any 20 years we have ever lived. That's his single-sentence summary and he has a, up in the corner of the website, and I'll tell you how to spell his name in a moment. But up in the corner of the website, it will, you will see a little box that says, short course, short course. It's a PowerPoint presentation. You'll never see his face. He will be narrating it of the economy. And it will be, a, it'll be a, a primer for you on uh, life on this planet, the economy, peak oil, all of that. I mean, he, just, he just is into it. So here's Chris Martinson, C-H-R-I-S, Chris Martinson, M-A-R-T-E-N-S-O-N dot com, Martinson, com. and um, they'll ask you if you want to get get alerts that he'll send out, so you go ahead, I turned it in, so you get an email every now and then. You have to pay to get his inner, you know, he's making a living to get his inner papers. Eventually, he releases the inner papers and he puts them on the website. So, um, what I like about him is he scans the media of the the world, pulls out headlines, says, look at this, look at this. So, it's a great trend analysis. It'll be beneficial for you. Uh, Jesus said, uh, and when you see these things begin to come to pass, lift up your head, look up, lift up your head, for your redemption draws nigh. And so, That'll be, that, that, that's a site that you'll find very informative, I believe. Yes, C-H-R-I-S, Chris, C-H-R-I-S, Martinson, M-A-R-T-E-N-S-O-N, Martinson, chrismartinson.com, dot com. All right, it looks like we're, you got two study guides? Okay, good. And listen, when we, get to, uh, when we get to the second part, because the first part, you need the second part to make the first part uh, valuable for you. If you didn't get one or somebody comes in and they only have one, we'll, we'll uh, do a recheck to make sure you have what you need. All right. Glad to have you. Thank you for coming. Like they say on United Airlines, we know you had a hundred different choices today as to getting to your destination. We're glad you chose United. And I am grateful that you're here for this teaching. I, I am praying, praying early this morning, that this will be beneficial for you. I have friends who are praying for GYC down here this whole weekend. Tomorrow you and I will be together, Sabbath morning, for worship. And if you would be praying for that as well, that the Holy Spirit will commune with all of our hearts. This is a theme whose time has come. Fill me our earnest plea. Sometimes we don't realize how... that single prayer is tapped into the omnipotence of God and unleashes for us unbounded power. I want to, I want to read a quotation for you before we pray and plunge into, into our teaching here. I'm going to read to you after our prayer a letter from a young adult who ran into the critics of Ellen White. She wrote me, and I want to read her letter. It, it reflects what we face. But first, uh, in, in my uh, prayer journal, because... Yesterday morning, if you were at the Second Coming of the Holy Spirit, I talked about writing an email to Jesus. You remember that? I don't write an email. I have a journal. I, get, I buy these little black and whites. you know these black and white spotted journals at Walmart? 92 cents at Walmart, by the way. What a deal. So I get them. It's 100 page, they're 100 pages long. So that's what I, I write a letter to Jesus, not an email. But in my prayer journal, I have different quotations that I stick in. And uh, this one, I, I just have to read to you. I don't know. I may share it tomorrow morning as well. Speaking of the latter rain, Ellen White writing a little book called Last Day Events. If you if you're a note taker and you write references, it would be LDE, Last Day Events, page 194. And the neat thing about the web now is you know what? Everything she's written is sitting right there, one click away. Isn't that right? I have I have an iPhone. I have I, I, everything's there. I'm an iPhone, iPad. Everything's there. It's unbelievable the accessibility today. Oh, man. Okay, so anyway, this is LDE. You just type that in at the uh, site and, and it'll take you to page 194. But isn't this beautiful? Speaking of the latter rain, we need not worry about the latter rain. Sometimes when we're hearing all this talk about the latter rain, we ought to be praying, and boy, it's going to be happening, and boy, boy I hope you're ready, I hope I'm ready. Sometimes we get a little bit, we get a little bit anxious. I mean, you know, what if, what if, what if I'm really not ready? What if, what if it's happening all around me and I don't even know that it's happening? There is a there is a line somewhere that goes just like that, and we become a bit, we get a bit hyper. Maybe I'm not maybe I'm not praying long enough. Maybe I'm not seeking God hard enough, and I'm not getting the Holy Spirit. This is such a balm for for our anxious souls. Listen to this: we need not worry about the latter rain. Don't worry, not to worry. Listen. All we have to do is keep the vessel clean and right side up and prepare for the reception of the heavenly rain and keep praying. So you ever seen a coffee mug? The whole world knows those little, those little mugs. You know what she's saying? She says, take that, take that mug. All you have to do, when you talk about the latter rain, just go through life with the mug up so that anything that comes down goes in the cup. Don't worry. Don't become obsessed. Don't become anxious. Just hold your cup up. And when it rains, you'll get it. Just keep praying. God, I have my cup up. Oh, she says, keep the vessel clean. Don't let stuff, don't, don't let uh, oil and smudge and yuck get in there. No, keep it clean. Keep it clean. But keep it up. Just keep it up. All we have to do is keep the vessel clean and right side up and prepare for the reception of the heavenly rain and keep praying. And here's a prayer. Here's a sample prayer. Let the latter rain come into my vessel. Let the light of the glorious angel which unites with the third angel. Remember Revelation 18.1 yesterday. Let the light of that Revelation 18.1 angel shine upon me. Give me a part in the work. Let me sound the proclamation. Oh, and let me be a co-laborer with Jesus Christ. End of prayer. Thus, Ellen White writes, seeking God, let me tell you, He is fitting you up all the time and giving you His grace. All you have to do is walk through life with the cup up. I was thinking about this. Somebody came up to me last uh, yesterday after the seminar. And uh, I said, oh man, a quotation I wish I had brought. And he said, oh, we, we ought to get t-shirts with the cup up. And I forget what he said we ought to put on it, but it's just it would be a saucer, I mean a, a cup faced upward, ready for the rain. Just go through life with the cup up. You'll be fine. Don't be agitated. There's nothing, there's nothing the devil wants more than for you and me to become so obsessed with this that we freeze up and we lose the ease and the grace of Jesus just to move through life with our cup up. He said, I'll fill you. When it comes, keep the cup up. You'll be filled. You'll be fine. I like that balance, don't you? Yeah. All right, let's pray together. God, we are so grateful to be alive Friday morning. This is the next to the last day, 2011. Wow. And here we are in Houston, GYC. And we're thinking for a few moments in this this little series of modules on this gift. Second coming of the Holy Spirit poured out before the second coming of Jesus. We're going to keep our cups up by your grace, Heavenly Father. We're going to keep it right side up. And when you let that rain come, just fill our little cups, we pray. But we're thinking about the gift that was manifested, the Holy Spirit's gift, the testimony of Jesus in a particular life. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So is she a bad tree or a good tree? We know what the critics are saying. As we take a look now a little more carefully and analyze Their misunderstanding as critics open our minds so that we might give an intelligent, winsome, contagious response to those who ask us. And may the Spirit be in our midst, guiding our thinking, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me read to you a letter sent to me by a young adult, just graduated from Andrews University, so she wrote me, Dear Pastor Dwight, blah blah, 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 spends a paragraph chit-chatting. Now, my other reason for writing, here we go, my other reason for writing, finally after all these months, is unfortunately about a burden I have been dealing with this last year. Someone close to me who left the the Adventist church several years ago has become increasingly negative about Adventism. At first it was a general anger and frustration over wrongs inflicted, I don't know what. I felt that patience, love, and encouragement were the best response However, Now listen. In the last year, conversations regarding Adventists have become increasingly more bitter and hateful, especially involving Ellen White. What's up with that? My burden and heartache are not for the shaking of my own faith. My trust is in Jesus. But I am so worried about this person's hate and their potential to discourage and hurt those around them, many who are also close to me and young in the faith. I feel so drained and helpless after these conversations. Are there any books, any sermons that address these kinds of accusations? Should I spend my time seeking out explanations? Or is it a waste of energy? Should I just let it go and trust that God will work everything for good? Signed, thank you so much for your time, God bless. And she signs her name. Whoa! Very candid, very open. And very much reality. There are people just like that. All over the nation. So, how do we respond? Should I just kind of let, let it go and hope that God will somehow work it out? Welcome to our, our teaching right now, Ellen White. But what about the critics? What do we do with them? I want to begin with the words of the great Jewish scholar. He was a rabbi, Abraham Heschel, in his two volume magnum opus, his, his two volume set. In, entitled The Prophets. Let me begin with the Heschel. Over the life of a prophet, because he's, he's a Jew and he's thinking Old Testament prophets now, over the life of a prophet, words are invisibly inscribed, all flattery abandon ye who enter here. Why? Because you'd have to have your head checked to want to go into that profession, that's Why? Nobody. I mentioned this yesterday, nobody in her right mind would say, ah, ah, when I grow up, I want to be a prophet. I want to be a prophetess. Are you kidding? You'd be ridiculed while you're alive and excoriated once you're dead. They'll get you whether you're alive or dead. They'll go after you. Why would you want to be a prophet? Abraham Heschel, all flattery, abandoned here. Heschel goes on, to be a prophet is both a distinction and and affliction. The mission he performs is distasteful to him and repugnant to others. Boy, isn't that true. No reward is promised him, and no reward could temper its bitterness. The prophet bears scorn and reproach. He's stigmatized as a madman by his contemporaries and by some modern scholars as abnormal. Is that what is happening, or what? While she was alive, she's crazy. Now that she's dead, Hey, we've gone over it. There must be some kind of epilepsy or something going on here. This is weird. Heschel wasn't even thinking what you and I are thinking today. And he says, that's what happens when you're a prophet. All flattery, abandon, ye who enter here. Welcome to the world of Ellen White. In a letter with vulnerable candor. Now, I'm going to show you. In a letter with vulnerable candor, she faces up to this reality. She's writing to, to Uriah Smith, and what year was this? In, in 1883, he was editor of the Adventist Review. She's, she's talking to him. She's talking to him. Watch this. She's writing to him. Uriah, why do you remain as silent as the dead? They're going after her. And he says, listen... We've been friends for a long time. Why do you remain as silent as the dead? Is this the way you defend the truth? Truth will triumph. I expect that the raid will be made against me till Christ comes. Guess what? She really must be a prophet because that's exactly what's happening. Until Jesus comes. The venom, the vitriol to destroy her. You can't believe it, guys. Uh, You can if you go on the... Uh, in cyberspace, I expect that the raid will be made against me till Christ comes. Every opposer to our faith makes Mrs. White his text. They begin to oppose the truth and then make a raid against me. Why, Uriah, I ask, is all this zeal against me? I am watched. Every word I write is criticized. Every move I make is commented upon. I tell you what, I leave my work and its results until we gather upon... Up, until we gather, about the great white throne. In other words, God, let God be God. Let Him be judge. I'm going to let Him have the last word. There's nothing I can do. They're going to go after me after I'm dead. <laughs> Guys, that's exactly what's going on. Somebody is furious with this gift. Furious with this gift. And has devoted his best energies to destroying this gift. And what we're seeing is the fruit of that wrath. Hot wrath. In fact, we could almost take this literally. And the dragon was enraged against the woman. Isn't that something? It wasn't meant to be read that way. And the dragon is enraged against the woman. Oh, well, great then. What are you, what are you saying? Do I, we, we shouldn't examine this? We should, we, should not, we should not challenge it? No, no, no. She's not even making that point. Listen to this. Every charge should be carefully investigated. You're hearing stuff in cyberspace? Check it all out. Don't take my word for it. Every charge should be carefully investigated. It should not be left in any uncertain way. The people should not be left to think that it may be or it may not be. Everybody's keeping quiet. We're not going to say a word. Shh. Oh, that's the worst thing you could do. She says, no, the people should not be left to think that it may be or may not be. The people must not be left to believe a lie. They must be undeceived. That's why we're having this seminar. I don't know what you've read on the web, but I, by the grace of God, want a few moments to undeceive you if you've been hooked into the dragon's wrath. And I want you to keep an open mind. Some of you are here in a state of, "Eh, I'm just not so sure. Please keep an open mind. You understand where I'm coming from. Check it out. Today's teaching, Ellen White. But what about the critics? All right, let's go to our Bible. You can go to your Bible. I'm going to put the words on the screen. Ecclesiastes. When's the last time you've been in Ecclesiastes? It's been a while. But I want to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9, and you will, you will soon see why this passage is very important for us in our, in our defense of the gift. The gift is the Lord Jesus, revealed through the Holy Spirit. But the testimony of Jesus is the manifestation of that gift through the Spirit of Prophecy. Revelation is clear. We noted that yesterday. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. Solomon, at the end of his life, embittered, jaded, but wiser. And moreover, I'm reading now, and moreover, because the preacher was wise, the capital P preacher, he's referring to himself now, Solomon, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. He went looking for Proverbs. He finds the Proverbs. He sets them in order. Now, watch this. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. I like the way the NIV renders it. Just, the preacher sought to find just the right word. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. Whoa, what's happening here, Dwight? Ah! unbeknown to the reader. First time reading this, you're going to say, well, it's just a nice little thought. No, no, no. Solomon has just described how he wrote the book of Proverbs under the guidance of divine inspiration. Now, we need to jot down, we need to jot down right here the steps that Solomon has just shared with us. Because, as it turns out, now listen to me carefully, as it turns out, this is one of the most significant charges the critics level at Ellen White, and that is she plagiarized. She got her stuff everywhere else. It's it's not her. She just was cheating and, and copying. And we finally caught her. Grab your study guide. I want to read this text one more time, and then I want you to scribble down what we see in the text itself. What we're about to read and know carefully has everything to do with inspiration, which the critics have horribly misunderstood. Let's go. Let's read it again one more time. Uh, verse 9 again, Ecclesiastes 12. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. He took proverbs from all over, brought them all together. The preacher sought to find just the right words, the acceptable words. And what was written was, was upright. It was truth. Words of truth. All right, write them down. What, do we, what, what have we just noted? In an effort to teach the people, okay, so that's divine instruction. Solomon is saying, look it, in an effort to teach the people, that was his mission, we'll call that divine instruction. So this is one long sentence, but I'm dividing it up into parts. parts. So in an effort to teach the people, the inspired one, that would be Solomon in this case, gathers together his sources. Key word, jot it down please, sources. Those are his, that's his human research, that's his human reading. He's pulled it all together. So that, number three, he's able to grapple now to find acceptable words. He's looking for the words. How, what, what would be the right words, just the right word to use here? That's human vocabulary. In order to, number four, communicate what will be words of truth. Solomon is absolutely clear. After I've done all of that, what you've got is truth. The word of truth. Authoritative divine revelation. Which, by the way, is exactly how he wrote the book of Proverbs. Hold on to your seat, because this really comes as a surprise to some critics. As it turns out, Solomon's words aren't the only words in Proverbs. He has gone hunting. Let, let, let's, uh, let's take a note of this. He is the author. You're absolutely right. He did the collecting. Of course, he just described that to us. But he went to multiple sources. Let me just run this by you. Is this in your study guide? Do, do, do I talk about chapters 1 through 22 in your study guide? Okay, okay. So, those are the words of Solomon. Chapter 1 through 22 and then 25 to 29. We know those are Solomon's words. But now notice the next one. Then from chapter 22 to 24, it's called the words of the wise. And it has striking parallels with the Egyptian. I need you to jot this down. It's an Egyptian source now. The wisdom of Amenomope. All right? The wisdom of Amenomope is a pagan source of Proverbs. Do you understand that? The Egyptians are pagans. Solomon went to that pagan source, pulled out from that collection Proverbs he wanted to insert into his inspired book. Then you have, you notice it says here, the words of an unnamed wise man. That would be chapter 24. Then you have the words of Agur, chapter 30. We have no idea who they are. And then you also have, in the end, the words of King Lemuel, chapter 31. We don't know who he is either. Solomon pulled from all these sources, and voila, the book of Proverbs is now written. Now, with that Egyptian source material inside the inspired book, is Proverbs any longer an inspired book. Oh, come on, look at this. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. All scripture. Paul's not talking about the New Testament yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. All the Old Testament. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So what Solomon described to us in Ecclesiastes 12, that process gathering sources come here, come here. Oh, I think I think, Oh, that's a good one. I'll put that here. All of that include Oh, pagan Egyptian. Let me grab some of that and put that here. All of that was under the direction of the Holy Spirit. True or false? True. Guys, the reason the critics have a heyday with this is because they have no clue as to how inspiration works. We're now going to expose their Achilles heel right here. Solomon tells us how it works. Isn't that amazing? Apparently, would you jot this down? Apparently, divine inspiration allows for the inspired writer or prophet to consult and quote None inspired sources for his divine revelation without giving credit to those sources. Because <laughs> that's the other charge. She plagiarized. She won't tell us where she got it. She borrowed everything. We're going to find out that's plat- patently wrong, by the way, about borrowing everything. But get this down. Apparently, divine inspiration does not preclude quoting from non-inspired sources and giving no credit to where you got it. Apparently, God's okay with that. Because Solomon did it. Whoa. Now, here's the key point. This is amazing. What what we've just discovered in these short moments is amazing because that is precisely the most repeated charge the critics have leveled against Ellen White. They've charged her with blatant plagiarism and the use of other sources with the intent to deceive her readers by not giving credit to those sources, just like Solomon just like John. Oh, watch this. John, the beloved John. Oh, how we love the Apocalypse, the Seventh-day Adventist. That book at the end is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And oh my, does it paint a picture. God revealed to John of the end of human civilization and the beginning of God's eternity of peace. Oh, we love we love revelation. But did you know? Jot it down. Did you know? that John the Revelator actually borrowed multiple lines from a non-inspired source and quoted them as if they were his own words. Did you know that? I'm going to show you. In other words, he used another author's words to describe what he saw in vision. That's a huge charge that the critics have loved. It was spurs. Ride that horse. problem is they've got to ride it now on John. They've got to ride it on Solomon. They didn't know the Bible works this way. We won't hold that against them. They're dead wrong. All right? Book of Enoch. What's the book John borrowed from? Book of Enoch. First Enoch. It's part of the pseudopigrapha. What does pseudo mean? What does pseudo mean? False. Grapho means writing. It's part of the, what we call the false writings. We do not consider Enoch canonical. It is not. That's, it's in the Catholics. Uh, uh, Bible, it's not in our Bible. All right, the Apocrypha is in the, uh, the 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 wider, fuller Roman Catholic Bible. Protestants do not consider that canonical. No way, Jose. Let me show you something very interesting. Watch this, guys. Not only did he borrow from a non-inspired source, but get this—he actually used the non-inspired author's words for some of his own. I saw declarations. They go after Ellen White. There, ah, oh, she says she saw in vision. We found that. We found that. We found where she saw it. it's from a book. Guess what? So did John do the same thing. I saw from a book. <laughs> Apparently, God's very comfortable with this. But I, let me just show you how it works. Here's First Enoch, chapter forty, verse one. After that, I saw a multitude beyond number and reckoning who stood before the Lord of the Spirits. Does that sound familiar? It sure does, because Revelation 7, verse 9 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number standing before the throne. I saw. Here's another one. 1 Enoch 86, verse 1. And I saw, and behold, a star fell from heaven. Revelation 9, 1. And I saw a star falling from heaven. One list I saw lists 22 lines. Jot that down. 22 lines from First Enoch. That John brought into Revelation, never once saying where he got it. Non inspired source with no credit. Just like Solomon. Wow. So, shall we declare John a plagiarist? There's not one critic who says, Oh, yeah, you know, I think John's a plagiarist. Yep, but it turns out Solomon is too. Good night, we're losing them all. Oh, they're not going to do that. They say, Oh, no. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're not going to call John a plagiarist. And yet, when Ellen White does the same, ladies and gentlemen, here's the point. If El- when Ellen White does the very same thing, borrows from non-inspired literary sources like Solomon, sometimes uses their words to describe her I-saw visions like John, the critics yell, foul time out, foul, false prophet. Ah. You see, the problem with the critics, and I went to one of their websites, and with what righteous indignation and fervor he went after Ellen White for doing precisely what Solomon and John did in their books, the problem with the critics is they have an uninformed and unbiblical concept of inspiration. And because they have set up a straw man, they're using that false concept to judge the writings of Ellen White. That's not only illogical, that's unethical. You can't do that. But when you have an agenda, you don't worry about little details like that. Now look, I want to be as gracious to the critics as Jesus was to his. Now I'm not going to malign the critics. I will simply suggest that out of ignorance they write. What did Jesus say to the Sadducees? You, do not know the scriptures is your problem. You don't know how the Bible works. Was he being mean? Nope. He's telling the truth. He didn't say you don't know diddly squat. He just said you don't know. You err. Exactly right. You're making a mistake because you don't know how this works. And ladies and gentlemen, with, uh, with Christian politeness, I wish to draw that attention Draw your mind to that reality. So, what does the concept of biblical inspiration really look like There, Come on, Dwight, help us out. Here's where I want to quote from my friend Judd Lake, professor at uh, Southern Adventist University, my alma mater. Let me, if you can get a hold of this book, you're going to be blessed by his book. You'll see it in your study guide there, but I'm going to read the title again. I mentioned it yesterday. Ellen White Under Fire, Identifying the Mistakes of Her Critics. He calls this... Whole person inspiration. I like this. And uh, let's go to the quotation. You'll have to fill it in. The whole person model of inspiration. He coined this phrase, and I like it. The whole person model of inspiration recognizes numerous modes through which the Spirit of God worked with human beings to produce Scripture. And I I put some here in the brackets. Uh, With Moses... How did, God, uh, how did God work with Moses? It, it, he used a theophany. What's a theophany? The actual appearing of God. He appeared in the, in the burning bush, didn't he? just shows up. He appears on the top of Mount Sinai. He didn't do that with Jonah. But with Moses, he uses theophany. With, uh, with uh, Daniel, Gabriel comes and he's issued a prophecy. You're now given this vision. Do this with it. All right? But with, with Jonah, it's just a voice. Go. And it's enough for Jonah with the Solomon wisdom check the sources out pull them together leave that off bring that in my book so he uses these multiple methods and 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 as as Lake calls it this is the whole person model of inspiration one of these keep reading one of these modes relevant to the issue of literary borrowing is that of the of historical research in this mode of inspiration, the biblical author produced inspired writings independent of dreams and visions. How'd you do that? He received information through research. By the way, one of the Gospels was written this way. And which Gospel would that be? Luke, the historian, physician and an historian. He he tells us at the beginning of Luke, he said, I checked it all out. I looked at all these sources, I examined the stories, and I put a little collection together for you, O Theophilus, lover of God. He received information through research, reading, studying, compiling, and editing material from various documents. That would be literary borrowing, by the way. And generated by both inspired and uninspired authors. Nevertheless, God was providentially present and he was supervising the entire process. Luke clearly uses historical research. By the way, do you know that Matthew and Luke both borrow from Mark and never say a word? Not once do they tell us they borrow from Mark. Mark got his out first, and so they used his as a template. The crucifixion account in Matthew and Mark, almost identical. Hey, that's what they did. Solomon and Paul and John all quoted non-inspired literary sources. That's how the whole person model of inspiration worked for Bible writers. I believe we as Seventh-day Adventists believe that this same model of inspiration worked in the same way with Ellen White. The difference between Ellen White and uh, we'll we'll get into a moment about well, who has the authority. But the difference between Ellen White and authors 2,000 years ago is we have much more up-close opportunity to examine the actual primary sources, the handwriting, everything. So the scrutiny is intensified exponentially because we're bright now and we have computers and analysis and we bring it all to bear. So, poof! She's going through a scrutiny that no prophet has gone through because of proximity and the development of human intelligence and research. Is that wrong? No, it's life. We believe Ellen White, now listen to this carefully, we believe Ellen White experienced divine inspiration in the same manner and to the same degree as biblical writers did. Does that grant her the same authority, canonical authority, as the Bible? No, it does not. And I'll get to that in a moment. But first, how did how the critics respond to this? Well, they may say, okay, okay, Dwight, okay, look. Grudgingly, I'm going to accept the, the obvious fact that Bible prophets and writers utilized extra-biblical, non-inspired literary sources for some of their writings. But, hey, Dwight, what I'm going to tell you is that Ellen White did it way more than all the others, So she's the one that we should go for. I want you just to think about the logic of that for a moment. It's okay if you do a little of it, but if you do a lot of it, that's not good. Now, we're going to find out she didn't do a lot of it. But uh, let me quote from Tim Poirier. He's at the Ellen White Estate. Great guy. I know Tim. These are his words. The rebuttal from Ellen White's opponents to this comparison with biblical method of uh, uh, divine inspiration, is that the quantity of copying is higher in her writings than among the Bible writers. But the amount of borrowing, Poirier writing, is irrelevant to the question of whether inspired writers may legitimately use the language of other authors, including extra-biblical sources. Once it is recognized that inspiration is not negated by the use of pre-existing human sources... Who is to say what percentage of an inspired messenger's language must be free from such dependency? Did you get what she just said? Did you get it? Did you follow that? Once we say, it's okay, you can do like Solomon, it's okay, you can do like John. Once we agree to that, who comes up with the percentage? Well, if, ooh, 21%. Ah, if you had stayed at 20, you'd have been okay. I mean, we're moving now to the ridiculous. And that's Poirier's point. Let's be logical. If it's okay, if God works with that, who's to tell God how much he can do or what he can't do? Now, Poirier has checked out. He's checked it out. He said, okay, how much of Ellen White's writings are dependent upon other literary sources? So let's go. Uh, let me tell you about research. researcher Fred Veltman. Spent eight years examining her writings to determine the level of literary borrowing. And he, and he wrote the following conclusion. And by the way, you have the study guide here. You can go online. You can read his documented re, uh, report. So you got pages. Now, here's his bottom line. I found his bottom line, and here it is. A, this is Fred Veltman, Adventist scholar. A fair assessment of the evidence should not deny or underplay. Now, he's making a fair point here, and I need you to catch it. Should not, a fair assessment should not deny or underplay the degree of her dependence. She was dependent on other sources but neither should it overlook or depreciate her independence. The, and I like this line. The sources were her slaves, never her master. Do you get what that means? These sources, they didn't dictate to her, okay, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. You, gotta do this, you gotta, No. The sources, she said, I'll do this, I'll do this. The sources were her slaves, never her master. So here's, here's the question, guys. What is so amazing with Ellen White? And we'll take a look at uh, how many per- what, what her percentages of borrowing were. But what is so amazing is not what she borrowed. It's what she didn't borrow. It's what she's just we- weaving her way through material. I'll leave that out, I'll leave that out. Why did she know to leave that out? Why did she just take the whole page? It means more words, more pages, and get more money for your books. No, what's amazing is not what she borrowed, it's what she left out. How does she know to leave that out? How does Solomon know when he's, he's borrowing from this pagan Egyptian document? Ooh, that's not... Ooh, I'm leaving... Ooh, I, ooh, I can't put that in there. How do he know? Something's happening here. This whole model method of inspiration. I mean, you read the critics and you think, well, 80 to 90% of what Ellen White has written has all been borrowed. Wrong... If you ever go on a quiz show and they ask you, it was 80 to 90% of Ellen White's material borrowed? The answer that you need to give is, wrong. Poirier went through and he said, okay, let's check it out. Uh, do I have this in the study guide? Great controversy. Contains 15.1% source indicated quotations and another 5.1% of uncredited quotations. Total 20.5%. Okay." 20.5, Great Controversy, 20.5%. Other sources, quoted and non-quoted. Is, is that in your study guide? Yeah, okay, so I'm giving this to you. You can, you can scribble it down. You, you, you can get all of this. You can get all of this. Get Judd Lake's book. There, there are all kinds of uh, sources for you to uh, get further study to. But anyway, here's sketches from the life of Paul. It had 12.23% of borrowed material. Coney Baronhausen came out with a book, and we'll note it in just a moment. So, 12.23% of Paul's, uh, uh, the sketches of the life of Paul, borrowed. Here's another one. Steps to Christ, 6.2%. Okay, 6.2%. All other books, excluding Desire of Ages, were 3% or less of borrowed material. Now, what does Ellen White say to all this? She actually talks about her borrowing, without giving credit, In the Introduction to Great Controversy, you didn't know that? Let me share this with you. This is in the Introduction to Great Controversy. The great events which have marked the progress of reform in past ages are matters of history, well known and universally acknowledged by the Protestant world. They are facts which none can gainsay. All right? In some cases, now notice carefully, In some cases where a historian has so grouped together events as to afford, in brief, a comprehensive view of the subject, or has summarized details in a convenient manner, his words, in my book, is what she's saying, his words have been quoted. But in some instances, no specific credit has been given, since the quotations are not given for the purpose of citing that writer as an authority, but because his statement affords a ready and forcible presentation of the subject. She goes on, in narrating the experience and views of those carrying forward the work of reform in our own time, similar use has been made of their published works. End quote. She's being as upfront as you can be and she's saying, hey, sometimes I, I gave source references, other times I didn't. If, if they, I didn't need the sources and authority and I wanted to just quickly summarize what I've been writing about, I just went and took it and I didn't tell you where I got it from. Oh, that's terrible. Okay. Oh, just, just hold that thought in reserve. Because today, look, if, look, I, I, I pastor on the campus of Andrews University. If you try to do this in a class at Andrews, wholesale borrowing, no quotation marks, just put it in as your own, let me tell you something. You'd be out on your, uh, uh, you'd be out just like that if they catch you. And by the way, Those of you that are thinking about coming to the Theological Seminary, they have programs now that are being used in the seminary. Probably other places at Andrews University as well. But they'll take your essay that you've written, they'll submit it to the computer program in the web, and the computer program will point out where these ideas all first originated. So if you borrow something wholesale with no quotation marks around it, the the computer program, Boom! That was Henry David Thoreau, Walden Pond. So, turnabout's fair play. You can use cyberspace all you want, but they can now use it against you as well, so be careful. If you do this today, are you out? You're out of here. So, how can, how, how can we say that it's okay in the 19th century? I'll tell you how. Because that's the way they did it back then. Watch this. This was fascinating. By the way, Mark Twain, you ever heard of Mark Twain, the American uh, writer and humorist? Mark Twain, I'm quoting you now, wondered if there was anything in any human utterance, oral or written, except plagiarism. He said it's all borrowed. Everybody borrows and does it. Okay, that's back in the 19th century. It was just, it was just not a big deal. But... Let me, let, let me put a quotation on the screen for you. You have it in your study guide. Denny Fortin, the Dean of the Theological Seminary at Andrews University, Jerry Moon, Professor of Church History. They've written a piece on plagiarism and literary borrowing for the upcoming Ellen G. White Encyclopedia. And I've got an advance uh, look at this from, a, um, from their unpublished manuscript. Take a look at this. You'll have it in your study guide. This is fascinating. The practice of borrowing from other authors without giving explicit or detailed credit was widespread among the writers of the 18th and 19th centuries when she wrote 19th century. It was widespread. Although by today's literary standards this practice is unacceptable, it forms the historical context of Ellen White's own practice. Watch this. Such a practice was followed by, for example, by John Wesley in his book, Explanatory Notes Upon the New Testament. Now, John Wesley was a hero of Ellen White's because she was a Methodist. He's a hero of mine and I'm not a Methodist. But here's what Wesley did. And you're going to now read Wesley. It, see the quotation, internal quotation, that's Wesley now writing. It was a doubt with me for some time, he wrote in the preface, whether I should not subjoin to every note I received from them the name of the author from whom it was taken. I just debated back and forth, he says, whether I should give footnoted credit to where I got this, where this quote was from. But upon further consideration, I resolved to name none of my sources that nothing might divert the mind of the reader from keeping close to the point of view and receiving what was spoken only for its. Intrinsic value. Isn't that something? What he's saying is, you know, I thought about it for a while, but I finally decided, why use footnotes? If I use footnotes, I'm going to distract the reader. I want the reader to be focused in on the content, so I'm not going to tell them where I got it. I'm not going to say a word. They're going to think it's mine, but who cares? I'm making a point. And he made a point. And he taught truth. And he got by with it, because it wasn't a big deal back then. So now we're finding out, hey, she did the same thing. Mark Twain says, everybody's doing it. Whoa, what's happening here? John Wesley, John, the Revelator, Solomon, Paul. Denny, and, uh, Denny Fortin and Jerry Moon go on to make the point why it's so critical for us. They say, look, that's John Wesley, but... Here's their point, and this is a fair point, and we need to catch this. The real issue, however, is not whether Ellen White borrowed without giving proper credit, but whether she borrowed in such a way as to deceive the reader. She has been accused by the critics of being a thief, a liar, an exploiter of church members who constituted a captive market for her books. She knew she could get royalties by writing, and so she just kept writing and putting the books out so that her church members would buy the books and she'd get richer. That's the charge of the critics. Mm. So we need to ask the question, did she set out to deceive her readers? I'm gonna, uh, this, is, this is not in your notes, but I want you to, I want you to catch this. This is, this is fascinating. In the Great Controversy, that apocalyptic classic, Ellen White borrowed extensively from Daubigny's History of the Reformation. That's a French author, Daubigny, And she will sometimes give credit, sometimes she doesn't. She quoted extensively from, extensively from Wiley's History of the Seas," J.N. Andrew's History of the Sabbath, Uriah Smith's The Sanctuary and its Cleansing. She quoted from her own husband, James White, in his book, Life of William Miller, and never gave him credit. Her husband, I mean. These books, are well, they were, these books by the way, were well-known to her Adventist readers. In fact, listen to this. Christmas season, 1882. All right, she wrote a piece for the church journal, The Review and Herald, you know, the magazine, in which she urged her readers to purchase Daubigny's History of the Reformation to provide something to be read during those long winter evenings. She lived in Michigan, and she knew that the evenings are going to be long and cold. I want you to buy a good book to read over the winter. Go buy Daubigny's History of the Reformation. Now, ladies and gentlemen, look, if you are a plagiarist, the last book you will ask your readers to read is the book you're plagiarizing. That is a no-brainer. You don't want them to even know the book exists. You don't want them to see it on any shelf. You don't want them to ever open it because you borrowed from it. It's the other way around. She said, look, we're going to have some cold winter nights coming up. Get Daubigny. You're going to love it. Read the history of the Reformation. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Listen to this one. Six months before she comes out with her book, Sketches from the Life of Paul. That came out in 1883. An advertisement, listen, an advertisement for Coney Bear and Hausen's book, The Life of St. Paul. And by the way, Denny, Denny Fortin and, and Jerry Moon have determined that she borrowed 12% of her book from Coney Bear and Hausen. Six months before her book comes out, There's an ad that appears in Signs of the Times magazine with her endorsement of their book. And these are her words. I regard this book as a book of great merit and one of rare usefulness to the earnest student of the New Testament history. Please get the book. And then six months later, she comes out with it. I repeat, if you're a plagiarist, that's the last book you want your readers to find is the one that you borrowed from. It's not a big deal to her. They were doing it. John Wesley did it. And they didn't call it plagiarizing. Let me end this little segment on plagiarizing with the legal opinion of a Roman Catholic attorney. He's a trademark attorney named Vincent Ramick, specialist in patent, trademark, and copyright law in the Washington, D.C. firm, Diller, Ramek & White, 1981, the legal aspect of the charge that she plagiarized was examined by this Catholic attorney. Here are his conclusions based upon our review of the facts and legal precedents. Ellen White was not a plagiarist and her works did not constitute copyright infringement piracy. It is impossible to imagine that the intention of Ellen G. White as reflected in her writings and the unquestionably prodigious effort involved therein was anything other than a sincerely motivated and unselfish effort to place the understanding of biblical truths in a coherent form for all to see and comprehend. Considering all factors necessary in reaching a just conclusion, this attorney concludes, on this issue... It is submitted that the writings of Ellen G. White were conclusively unplagiaristic. End quote. He went over the corpus of material in the 19th century. He says, it's clear she did not set out to plagiarize and deceive. All right, okay, Dwight, okay, okay, okay. So she wasn't a plagiarist. But the problem with you, Adventists, is that you consider Ellen White equal in authority with the scripture. Oh, really? Says who? Find me one Adventist statement. Anywhere. You you can You you look anywhere you wish. Find me one statement. From the Seventh-day Adventist church that says, Oh, we consider Ellen White with equal authority. The Holy Scripture. Will you be able to find one? I challenge you. You won't. So what's up? Hey, oh, then I know what you... Well, by the way, before I make that point, here, here's fundamental belief number 18, by the way. The Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. This church is absolutely clear. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that, Dwight, because now you're, what you're declaring to me is that she has no authority in your church. Why well, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. First know what Ellen White writes here. This is, uh, this is, I think you have this in your study guide. This is Christ's object lessons. You have to fill this in, by the way. He, Christ, taught that the Word of God was to be understood by all. He pointed to the Scriptures as of unquestionable authority, and we should do the same. Unquestionable. The Bible is to be presented as the Word of the infinite God as the end, I put in there the last word, as the end of all controversy and the foundation, bottom line, of all faith. I mean, that's her point. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't make her say. You can't find the church to say she is equal with Holy Scripture. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere has anybody said that. That's a trumped-up charge of the critics. But people who don't know find that and say, yeah, you guys are just like Joseph Smith and all the others. It's just not true. But what what can you say? You just have to tell the truth. That's why you have the study guide. That's why you can go home. That's why you can keep this. You can share this. Ah, uh, well, see, it's clear she doesn't have authority. <laughs> nobody, nobody is saying she, does, she doesn't have authority. In fact, we can illustrate it this way. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Remember that? Yep. Now Listen. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba, the only Bible available at that time... Just just think with me. The only Bible available at that time was... Would be the books of Moses. True. Isn't that right? Only the five books. That's all that's there. Nothing had been written yet. Okay. So, when Nathan the prophet comes storming into that throne room, and he points his prophetic finger at David, and he says, Behold, you are the man... How does David respond? Yo, Nate, 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 thank you so much for bringing that information to me, but I want to remind you, you are a prophet without authority. You you don't have a single book in Scripture, so I'm not listening to you. Did he respond that way? Are you kidding? When Nathan said, you are the man, collapsed in tears, just dissolved in tears and repented. Nathan had all the authority a prophet needs. You, and he didn't say a word, he hadn't written a word in the Bible. Now, let's keep going. Here. So, we got the illustration going now. Nathan has authority. First Chronicles 29.29. Did you know that Nathan wrote a book? First Chronicles 29.29. He wrote a book. So, let's say that next week, archaeologists dig up the book of Nathan. Whoa! We have found the book of Nathan. Now, does Nathan have canonical authority? Because we found his book all these years later. Does he now have canonical authority? In other words, is he equal to the Bible now that we found his book? No, he doesn't. Does he still have authority? Did he have authority then? Yes. Is he equal to the canon? No. Gerhard Fondo. Would would, would the book now become a part of the canon? No. Gerhard Fondo. Oh, by the way, sorry, I left this out. Nathan was a non-canonical prophet, but he had plenty of spiritual authority. Let's just get that clear. Non-canonical prophet, but he had plenty of spiritual authority. And now I'm putting that line in so that you can use this this illustration with others. Now Gerhard Fondo. No. Would his book now be canonical? No. It would remain an inspired book, because he was a prophet. It would remain an inspired book outside of the canon. The canon means the 66 books that compose our Bible. And if a theological statement were found in Nathan's book, it would remain an inspired and authoritative statement, but it would be outside the canon. Ladies and gentlemen, thus it is, with the writings of Ellen White. Is she canonical? Nope. Is she inspired like the ancient prophets? Yep. Is she authoritative like the ancient prophets? Yep. I like the way my friend Merlin Burt, director of the White Estate on the campus of Andrews University, I like the way he puts it. The quality, jot this down, the quality of inspiration in her writings is the same as that of Bible prophets, but the purpose, the purpose is different. Same quality of inspiration, but the purpose is different. She expressed that her messages were for the purpose of leading people to the Bible, to testify to the centrality and primacy of the Bible. She wrote, these are her words, I have a work of great responsibility to do, to impart by pen and voice the instruction given me, not alone to Seventh-day Adventists, but to the world. I have published many books, large and small, and some of these have been translated into several languages. This is my work, to open the Scripture to others as God has opened them to me. End quote. It is the critics' inability to differentiate between inspiration and authority that causes their utter confusion. They are confused. Don't let their confusion confuse you, too. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. The baseless charge that Adventists hold the writings of Ellen White as equal to the Holy Scripture is simply that. It is baseless. There is no basis for it. We do not. You ask me, Dwight, what do you believe and why do you believe it? Right here. If I can't show it here, I'll not teach it. I have to teach and preach. And every preacher in the Seventh-day Adventist church is under that same holy obligation. Thus says the Lord. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Right here. Does Ellen White have no authority then? Oh, no. She has plenty of authority. As I shared with my personal testimony yesterday afternoon, it was her little book, Steps to Christ, that led me to Jesus at 22 years of age. I believe the Holy Spirit brought the testimony of Jesus into the life and prophetic ministry of Ellen White. No question. Okay, I want to end with this. And then I'm going to play a video clip for you. Okay? I want to end with this. The, in 1982, a document entitled, and this is now the first page of the second handout. The people at the copy place got it wrong. It's supposed to be the last page of your first handout. It's now the first page of the second handout. Not to be confused. Just keep the two together. You'll be fine. In 1982, a document entitled The Seventh-day Adventist Church's Understanding of Ellen White's Authority was published. Included in the document are ten affirmations and ten denials that enunciate the authority of Scripture and the place of Ellen White's prophetic ministry in our faith community. I want to close by reading both lists to to you. Ten affirmations, and ten denials. You may follow on the uh, document you have. I'll put it on the screen and I'll read off of the screen. Affirmation number one. We believe that Scripture is the divinely revealed Word of God and is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's our position as Seventh-day Adventist Christians. All right? Number two. We believe that the canon of Scripture is composed only of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. Number three, we believe that scripture is the foundation of faith and the final authority in all matters of doctrine and practice. Number four, we believe that scripture is the word of God in human language. Number five, we believe that scripture teaches that the gift of prophecy will be manifest in the Christian church after New Testament times. Yes, we do believe that. Number six, we believe that the ministry and writings of Ellen White were a manifestation of the gift of prophecy. Number seven, we believe that Ellen White was inspired by the Holy Spirit and that her writings, the product of that inspiration, are applicable and authoritative, especially to Seventh-day Adventists. We believe that. Number eight, we believe that the purposes of the Ellen White writings include guidance in understanding the teaching of Scripture and application of these teachings with prophetic urgency to the spiritual and moral life. Number nine, we believe that the acceptance of the prophetic gift of Ellen White is important to the nurture and unity of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And finally, affirmation number ten, we believe that Ellen White's use of literary sources and assistance finds parallels in some of the writings of the Bible. We've already shown that this morning. Now, ten denials. Here we go. Denial number one, we do not believe that the quality or degree of inspiration in the writings of Ellen White is different from that of Scripture. Number two, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White are an addition to the canon of sacred scripture. Number three, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White function as the foundation and final authority of Christian faith, as does scripture. Number four, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White may be used as the basis of doctrine. Number five, we do not believe that the study of the writings of Ellen White may be used to replace the study of scripture. Number six, we do not believe that scripture can be understood only through the writings of Ellen White. It's very important, by the way. Some Adventists don't understand this one. They make Ellen White the last word, not Scripture, and that's a big mistake. Number seven, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White exhaust the meaning of Scripture. Well, if she didn't write it, then it can't be true. No, that's not true. Number eight, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White are essential for the proclamation of the truths of Scripture to society at large. Number nine, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White are the product of mere Christian piety. That's what you'll hear. Oh, she's a devotional writer. She just blesses me. She's just a devotional. She has no authority. No, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White are the product of mere Christian piety. And finally, number ten, denial number ten, we do not believe that Ellen White's use of literary sources and assistance negates the inspiration of her writings what's the point about the critics anybody who has the time and the resources to do the research as we have just done in these few moments can conclusively answer every other charge that the critics level we have not followed cunningly devised fables some of the brightest minds in this denomination have spent years and carefully making available what I can share with you in, you know, in, 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 in 50 minutes. You want to keep studying? I'm going to give you two websites. Oh, I forgot the concluding, sorry. I forgot the concluding statement. We conclude, therefore, that a correct understanding of inspiration and authority of the writings of Ellen White will avoid two extremes. Number one, regarding these writings as functioning on a canonical level, identical with Scripture, or the other extreme, considering them as ordinary Christian literature. Yeah, you don't want to miss that conclusion. Let me give you these two websites. You have them in your study guide. Hang on to those. My friend Judd Lake has the website Ellen White Answers. He's got... Documents. He's got papers he's written. Others have written. Go to that website. Some of you came to me afterwards. I have a question. I have a question on amalgamation. One young lady came to me afterwards. And that question can be easily answered. There will be questions that will come along the way. People will come to you and say, Hey, but what about this? Remember those two websites. What did Paul write yesterday when we were looking at First Thessalonians 5? Test all things, hold fast to what is good, for by their fruits, Jesus said, you'll what? You'll know them. Okay, now I end with that video clip. One of my heroes as a young minister was the godly biblical scholar and preacher named H.M.S. Richards Sr. He spoke at my ordination. I was ordained out in Oregon at the camp meeting there, and he was the preacher at the ordination. And afterwards, I went up to him, because I just really admired that man. He now sleeps in Jesus. But I went up to him, and I took my preaching Bible at the time. It was a Revised Standard Version. And I said, Dr. Richards, would you mind signing my Bible? And so he grabbed that Bible. He said, and he said, may I have a pen? He must have been in his 80s, late 80s. He had, he, he had, for the longest time in his life, glasses so thick, they were like the bottom of a Coke bottle. I mean, just that thick. And so he, he held the Bible up here, and I opened up to where I wanted him to sign it. And he, he scribbled his signature and then underneath it he wrote 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. You know what 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 says? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was the passion of his life. And as soon as I saw that, that verse has become a motto of my own. So, oh, Dr. Richards, uh, for me, a man... To be greatly regarded. So I'm, I, I, I don't know how I came across this YouTube clip. Don't ask me because I could not replicate the journey to finding it. It was accidental in, in my humble estimation. I was glad I was led to it though. Because you're going to now hear HMS Richards on old 16mm uh, photography. You're going to hear him speak. Now... You just go ahead and watch that screen, because I'm going to go down here. And I'm sorry, this used to be able to fill my whole screen, but uh, I just got a new computer, and it's not transferring in the same way. So I'm going to bring it up, and then uh, I'm going to wait for QuickTime to put its little screen up. What's up, QuickTime? Don't leave me now, QuickTime. See, I'm waiting for the screen to fill here. It should turn black. Well, no, we'll get the sound. I know what will happen. I want to get the picture. So if I close this, if I close it, guys, you know what will happen, don't you? If I minimize it, it's going to be the same. I'm going to have to close it, but then it's gone. We'll never see him again. Where have you got HMS Miss Richards? So I'm going to go over here, because this is how I found it last night. But I open it. I do? Okay. Thank you. You're right. You're right. You're right. Thank you. Okay. And I can't get it any bigger than this, guys, because uh, it's now setting it up. Do you see that little circle going round and round? Keep your eye on it. You are getting sleepy. (laughs) You are. Come on, it's trying to open it. Yeah. Guys? What we're going to do is we're, take, we're going to have a prayer and take our break when you come back. When you come back. HMS Richards will be front and center. All right? We'll get it figured out. It's technology for you. But uh, I want to pray with you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Dear Father, look, this has been a whirlwind. We just flew through this material. But what we noted, Father, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit who has helped us to understand realities like this, we discovered that this whole person model of inspiration that you invented and you used allowed for your servants to pull from other sources and draw into the orbit of divinely inspired material that which you determined would be beneficial for us. No credit given, just taking and using. Now, Father... In all of this, we don't want to get in the position of where we're exalting the gift above the giver. She had the gift. There is no question in my mind. She had the gift. She exercised the prophetic ministry. But the testimony of Jesus is just that. It's the truth about Jesus. Don't let us lose that Jesus-centered focus. And we come back from our break and we listen to H.M.S. Richards who was there when she preached. And he recalls that moment. Uh, remind us again, remind us again that the gift is one to be experienced anew again and again and again. Thank you, Father, for the gift. Thank you for being the giver. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC. A supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.